Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Mile End service. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit christchurchlondon.org. He comes up, I'm going to read the passage, which is from Luke chapter 14, verses 1 to 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, who was being carefully watched, there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked, uh, Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when the host comes, he will say to you, friend, Move up to a better place, then you'll be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, and when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a, uh, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Amen. Let's welcome Joel as he speaks for us. Thank you, Adnan. Good morning, everyone. Great to see so many people here at Full House. Um, before I get into the talk uh, that I have prepared for today, I just want to... Um, Firstly, just thank Aaliyah for sharing earlier on. I don't know if she's, I can't, I'm not sure where she, there she is. Aaliyah kind of perfectly displayed um, the heart of what I want to describe and talk about today. Um, we're talking about the subject of humility. And humility, not just in maybe the common way we think about humility and pride, but humility is a form of love. But what did Aaliyah do when she shared her heart? She was honest, she was vulnerable. She said things as they really were, but she was prepared to do that as a form of worship to God and as a form of love for her church family. Like she wasn't thinking about herself, what you might think of her, some attachments she might have to an image that she's built, or whatever it might be. She was displaying her heart to us, and it was a form of worship and it was a form of love. That was humility. And... Um, we're going through the season of Lent, and I have been so excited, kind of ironically in a sense, because Lent is not necessarily the most celebratory time of year, but what, what Lent does is it, it allows us, and Sam and I were talking about this before the service, it allows us to uh, reveal parts of ourselves or to think about our life in a way that most of the time we don't get an opportunity to do. Thinking about repentance or our sin 
or our, our idols or the things that kind of have got our attachments and our worship. This is a moment of the year where we get to reflect on that in ways that we wouldn't normally do in the noise and the busyness of our world. Lent is an opportunity to kind of remove all of the stuff, all of the fears, all of the attachments and allow things to be as they truly are. And if you came to the Ash Wednesday service, it was just this beautiful opportunity to be humble, say things as they are, acknowledge our failures, our sin, repent to God. But what we do in that moment, what we receive in that moment is re- repent to him. It's like, it's like this form of rest. It's like, ah, oh, I can just allow things to be as they are. I don't have to put on this mask. I don't have to put on this front anymore. I can just allow things to be as they truly are. That is a form of humility, what we're looking at today. And I've been grappling with this, this talk and this theme for a while. Dee and I were talking about it a couple of weeks ago and trying to figure out how do we talk about this virtue that I think is super important in the Christian faith, but it's, it's quite difficult to uh, describe in a way that is relatable or helpful because it can sometimes be a difficult thing to grasp or how to uh, figure out how to integrate humility into our life. It's probably the, or possibly the only virtue that we're perhaps afraid to recognize as having in our own life because we think it would be a sign of displaying the opposite. We think it might be a sign of pride. And so before we get into this passage, I want to start uh, by defining what I mean by humility. And that's really important because different cultures, different societies, uh, all of us may have different experiences with this word or this virtue that bring about different connotations for us. Some cultures have a high view of humility, others have a low one. So what do we mean by humility? Well, firstly, humility is not passivity. It's not refusing to put yourself forward. It's not thinking you cannot take up any space or that your voice shouldn't be heard. You can be humble and have ambition. You can be humble and want to work hard. You can be humble and confident. Humility is more to do with your motivation for those things, the reason why you want or have those things than the thing itself. Humility is not passivity. Secondly, humility is not self-deprecation. Now, if you look at the, the dictionary definition of this word, humility, you'll get something like this. I think there's a, there's a slide for it. The quality of having a modest or low view of one's importance. Now, I think that definition is okay. But the danger of that definition is that, ironically, it puts the emphasis on ourselves. That definition is all about how I perceive me. It's the perception I have of my qualities, my character. But also, the danger of that definition is that if that was all we had, it could be very easy for humility to lead us to think that we are less valuable than we actually are. And when we fail, or if we have a certain personality type that is more uh, naturally self-deprecating, humility can quickly become self-criticism. That is not what humility is. So what is humility? Well, Teresa of Avila, a uh, 16th century Carmelite nun, uh, gave two really helpful attributes of what humility is. That humility is firstly walking in the truth. Humility is in many ways just a form of honesty. It's seeing things for what they truly are, no more and no less. And for followers of Jesus, we believe deeply that every human being, every person in this room, every person in East London is made in the image of God and therefore has infinite worth and value. And that should cut against any self-temptation to self-criticize or self-deprecate. 
but it also means we are willing to just allow things to be as they are. As Aaliyah showed us as kind of a beautiful living example today, we just allow things to be as they are. We don't have to have a mask. We don't have to lie. To lie. We don't have to allow things to appear as they're actually not. We're made in his image. And whatever we do in our life, the accomplishments or the successes, nothing will ever top that. We are made in God's image and we have such value and worth because of that. Humility is walking in truth. And secondly, humility is walking in self-knowledge or self-awareness. Now, humility can come from an awareness of our own sin, uh, the ways we have fallen short. That can be just a helpful and a natural way for humility to be formed in us. We just simply recognize our own weakness and our failure, not to be defined by those things, but simply recognize those things exist. Humility is a form of self-knowledge and self-awareness. There's a little bit of a danger in that, definition of humility as well, because I don't actually think that's the primary way humility is formed in us. And before we get to the passage, I want to add a third definition, which is that humility is a form of love. Now, if you were to describe who Jesus is, if you were to define his character, what would you say? Powerful, loving, kind, well, a good way to answer this question is to actually look at how did Jesus describe himself. And this is the famous passage in Matthew. This is what he says. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How Jesus describes himself, the center of who he is, is gentle and humble. And that, when we get to experience who he is, when we are in his presence, it feels like rest for ourselves. Dane Ortland, in his book Deeper, describes this as this different definition as the fountain, the engine, the throbbing core of all that he does. That if you peer down into the deepest recesses of Jesus Christ, you will find humility. Jesus was humble, but his humility doesn't come from an awareness of his own sin because he never sinned. And because Jesus is humble, the virtue of humility is not simply the opposite of pride because Jesus was, existed before pride entered the world. So instead, humility is simply a form of love. It's taking your eyes off of yourself and your own interests and onto God and to other people. Humility is about looking outward. Pride is about looking inward. Here's how Henry Nouwen describes it. Humility in the spiritual life does not refer to people who have no spine and who let everyone else make decisions for them. They refer to people who are so deeply in love with Jesus that they are ready to follow him wherever he guides them. Humility is about loving Jesus and being ready to follow him wherever he guides us. Note that Nouwen doesn't use any kind of description or doesn't mention how we perceive ourselves because humility looks outward. The focus here is on loving Jesus and following him. Humility is truth, it is self-knowledge, and humility is love. And so I want us to go through this story, the three major scenes, the healing on the Sabbath, the place of honor at the table, and the generous invitation, to discover the picture that Luke is painting for us And what we can learn in this story to walk in truth, to walk in self-knowledge, and to grow 
in love. So let's go back to verse 1. At one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Now, really important. Now, the prominence of this Pharisee, whoever he was, makes sense of what's to come later in this passage. Everyone wants the seat of honor in the place, in the house of a prominent Pharisee. But Jesus is being watched carefully, and it's possible that this introduction of this, this man who needs healing is no coincidence, that he was placed there strategically for the Pharisees to try to trap Jesus. And so Jesus, knowing what is going on, he asked this question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, healing on the Sabbath, it's a, it's a repeated theme, like how, how the Sabbath uh, interacts in that, in that culture. It's a repeated theme when we read the Gospels. But the healing on the Sabbath doesn't go against anything in Scripture or what's called the Mosaic Law. Jesus followed and fulfilled the law. But what Jesus is challenging here is the interpretation and additional laws that the Pharisees uh, kind of put in place in order to make breaking the Mosaic Law like not just undesirable but like impossible. All of these different uh, ways to stop even getting close to breaking the Mosaic Law. And one of the most contentious issues in that time, one of the most contentious interpretations, was what does it mean to not work on the Sabbath? In the chapter before, in in Luke 13, before we get to uh, the one we are in today, there's there's another healing on the Sabbath. And again, it's really insightful. Jesus has just healed this woman who's described as being crippled with a disease, uh, with a spirit, in fact, for 18 years. But let me read the response of the religious leader to this healing. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Like, what? (laughs) Something so toxic had entered the theology and culture of this, this religious institution, this religious system, that a woman being set free from this spirit for 18 years was met with anger instead of wonder. And this beautiful day that God had given humanity as a gift, the Sabbath, a day to rest and to worship him, had now become loaded with religious baggage. And here's how Jesus responds. You hypocrites, doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, emphasizing her worth, her value, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? And Jesus describes how all these additional expectations and laws that the Pharisees put on people is like a heavy, cumbersome load. Compare that to Matthew. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you'll have peace. Rest for your souls. There's a difference. Here's the contrast between the Pharisees, the religious leaders of that day, and Jesus. The religious leaders, they'd miss the heart of what the law was supposed to be all about. Loving God and loving others. And he emphasizes this point with a similar metaphor in the passage in Luke 14 we're looking at today. If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. The culture that Jesus ministered in lacked grace, lacked love, and lacked humility. And the constant critique of the religious leaders in that time was their pride and their hypocrisy. On the surface, they they appeared as holy and righteous according to their own laws and their own set of values, but inside they were rotten to the core. And they valued the appearance of their observance rather than what their observance was supposed to lead to. They valued being seen as these mighty, mighty people who follow God, but actually 
the thing, the thing they were trying to follow was supposed to lead them to become people of love, to look outward, to become humble, but instead they turn inward on themselves and pride and hypocrisy was allowed to fester in their heart. To use Teresa of Avelia's definition, they were not walking in truth and had no sense of self-knowledge. That's scene one. Scene two. Jesus arrives at the house of this prominent Pharisee and the people who likely would have been other Pharisees, other religious leaders, they are jostling for position. They want the place of honor, the best seat in the house. Now, have you ever done that thing where you're going out for dinner, and maybe with a few people, and uh, you kind of strategically place yourself in the position that will mean you're most likely to talk to somebody you want to talk to or be near someone you want to talk to? You don't go from the middle, you just go just off-center because you don't want to be too obvious. Or you do the thing where you... You kind of like, you see the table ahead, you're walking with people, and you sort of strategically increase or decrease your speed to be near the, is this just me? Oh, come on, guys. To be near the people that you want to sit with. Does anyone else do that? Is it just me? Um, it's just me. Everyone wants the best seat at the table, the place of honor. Uh, a few years ago, I had the privilege of taking part in a wedding ceremony uh, for, some friends, for some friends of ours. And uh, this is one of those weddings where you're so hungry, you're like resisting to like eat the tablecloth. You know, when the photos just take forever, you're just like, what's going on? And uh, there was this buffet at uh, this wedding, and some people, uh, not on our table, were so hungry, they just decided to start eating before the bride and groom arrived. Like, it was very, very rude. Uh, and um, slowly, a few tables cottoned on and followed, including ours. And uh, we thought it would be inconsequential, helpful even, just to start eating before we were told, uh, and at this point, I thought I'd done my duty. I was already jacket off, top button undone, you know, relaxing, celebrating that, you know, ceremony went well and all that stuff. As I'm tucking into my meal, the MC at the wedding announces that Pastor Joel is now going to say grace before we eat. Now, I didn't know the MC, and I don't know if he saw my sin as I ate my food, but he goes on to say how much of a man of God I am, that I waited and had patience to say grace and commit this meal to God before eating. And I was like, what the heck? This is unbelievable. Now, my friends, some of whom who go to this church, were laughing hysterically as I was doing my tie-up, like wiping the food off my face in a bit of a panic. And so, as I'm sure you would, uh, you wouldn't be surprised to hear, I took the mic um, and I apologized for my sin. I repented publicly and uh, I didn't do that. <laughs> I assume the godly position. Lord, thank you for this food that we're about to receive. Everyone wants to appear as someone they're not. They want to appear as if they have the place of honor. And there's this temptation and desire in all of us to keep up appearances, to appear as something we're not actually inside, to not allow others to see things as they truly are. And that's just a silly example, but I think we could all relate to that temptation. Everyone wants the place of honor. And Jesus calls this out. Now, Jesus is not giving people here a strategy for how to get the best seat in the house or how to get to the top of the meritocracy, or he's not simply saying that, hey, if you really want the top seat, just take the bottom, like you'll work your way up. That's not what he's saying. That's pride using a different strategy. He's showing you that if your own sense of importance and the acknowledgement of your importance by others, if that is the most important thing to you, you will always be let down. Within the metrics of the world, there is always someone more powerful, more wealthy, more worthy, more beautiful. And it will leave you feeling insecure, miserable, and stuck in a cycle of comparison. Pride is the original sin, and we are all jostling for position. 
Jung Chul Han, uh, this uh, philosopher, has this great phrase that I think sums up so much of our tendency uh, in ourselves and in our culture. He says that we are all entrepreneurs of ourselves. And he gives this definition in the context of what he calls achievement society, that our education, our politics, our economics, our careers are all wrapped up in the desire to optimize, produce, and succeed, to have the best seat in the house, to be at the top table. And we live in a culture often described by the phrase expressive individualism. Charles Taylor describes it or defines it like this, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. Now, if that's true, and I think it is in the, the context of our culture, if I get to decide what's right or what's good or what it means to be human, the way to do that is to look inward. And when we look inward, we become self-centered. And when we, look, when we become self-centered, we become proud. And so many of the stories we absorb, the narratives that we hear, the tools that we use, they indulge our propensity to look inward, to make me the center of the story. Our culture tells you, exalt yourself and you'll be exalted. This is the air we breathe, which is precisely why this virtue of humility is so rare in our culture, so difficult to cultivate. And when you see it, when you witness it, like particularly in something like politics that is so proud, like, it's like, it's like, it feels like water. It feels like, oh, finally someone's just saying it as it is. Like all the, the guards are down, the mask is off. They're not the savior, like they're just saying it as it is. It feels like water when you hear or you witness true, genuine humility. Now most of us will find the overtly proud, those that revel in their success and their accomplishments. We will just find that unattractive and off-putting. But that isn't necessarily the temptation that we will need to contend with. What most of us will need to contend with is the forces in our culture that amplify this temptation to obsess over the self. Not, not necessarily boast about ourselves, but obsess over ourselves. The Catholic bishop, Robert Barron, describes that in the spiritual tradition, pride is less about bragging and boasting in the classic form of pride that is overt and obvious. Pride in the, in the spiritual tradition is more like being overly aware and focused in on ourselves, our priorities, and our goals. It's a kind of, this kind of self-obsession that expressive individualism can create, or this idea of being an entrepreneur of yourself. This is, this is what it means. This is the more sort of spiritual tradition of what pride is. When you, when you look back in Genesis where you see Adam and Eve, their pride wasn't a desire to boast about who they were and brag. It was, like, it was just this over-indulgence in the self and who they were and what they wanted. Whereas humility, he describes, is more about being fully present to the person in front of you or to the experience in front of you. It's, it's having this perspective that, that calls you outward, away from yourself, rather than inward. It's more like the kind of forgetting of self. You're not thinking about how you're being perceived or how you could use this moment for your own gain. You're not comparing yourself with others. You're just, you're just like in the moment, you're fully present. That's what he would describe as humility. And it's in those moments where we are more fully alive, not less, where we experience more joy, become more fully human when we kind of forget ourselves and just be fully present to the people experience around us. It leads us away from our self-obsession and into something far greater and more valuable. 
I was having dinner with some friends last, or a couple of weeks ago now, and uh, uh, one of them is a kind of really successful entrepreneur, and he described something that I think many struggle with, especially entrepreneurs. He described this feeling, this sense of like always being on, like always being sort of uh, slightly on edge, because work is never fully uh, out of his mind, or his work is always close to his thoughts. And if our culture is kind of creating this... Um, uh, environment where we are entrepreneurs of ourselves, or at least that's what we are told is the important or the way for the good to, to the good life. It is no wonder that the temptations to think about ourselves, how we're being perceived, if we're liked, if we're successful than others, is so much greater for us to contend with. Let me just give you a really tiny example of how I think this plays out. And this is me. There's no judgment at all here. I think the best way I could uh, articulate what I mean by this sort of being more uh, uh, looking inward or this sort of obsession with the self rather than being present to the moment, to the people, to the experience around you, is when you're kind of taken aback by this incredible landscape or a beautiful sunset or you're, a, you're listening to the most amazing uh, music or play or whatever it might be. What's your automatic response? Or if it's not yours, what's the automatic response of most people in the room? Get out your phone, capture the moment, and you share it. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, just to be clear. And I, I've done this and do this. But Robert Barron, th this, uh, the, the Catholic bishop who gave this definition of humility and pride, would argue that that reaction is preventing us from experiencing the life that humility can actually lead us into. That those moments where, where beauty has elevated our experience, they, they're supposed to elevate us away from ourselves into something greater, Either to God, we see this landscape, oh man, thank you Jesus, like, thank you God. Or to another person, oh, I'm just in this moment, I'm not thinking about myself, I'm not thinking about how I'm being perceived, like I'm just fully able to be here with this other person. And yet our culture has created this tool that breaks that moment. And rather than leading us outward towards love, either like towards the love of God, the wonder of his creation, uh, through music or through whatever it might be, or just being fully present to this, this person in front of me, it leads us to turn inward toward the self. The way, the way I've sort of seen this is these moments that can have the opportunity to lead us to, to humility, to lead us to love. They're, like, they're supposed to be like windows. Like You see this beautiful landscape, and it's like a window to, to God. It's a window to this sort of super or transcend, uh, transcendent experience. But instead, it's almost like we have these mirrors instead. We kind of cut that, that experience, and we just look, look back on ourselves instead. But if humility is a form of love, those experiences are supposed to, to lead us into love, love of God or love of others. Now, with the more overt and obvious forms of pride and humility that we think of, that kind of example sounds completely unrelated. But if pride is an over-realized sense of self, and humility is like the forgetting of self, then I think that I can totally relate. I, I, I do that. I do that all the time. And one of the reasons I came off social media was because I couldn't help but see the world through the lens of my phone. Rather than being present to the moment, I would be thinking about how this moment could be expressed in such a way that made me come across as a certain kind of person. That is pride. And it created in me this feeling that every moment is an, ex is an opportunity for self-expression. Meaning that you're always on, entrepreneurs of the self, always on display. Like we're Truman and the Truman Show. Does anyone remember that film? Was that, like, we're Truman and the Truman Show, but we know everyone is watching us. That's the kind of feeling that we can create in us. And the fruit of that is exhaustion. It is exhausting. 
And it, what the digital age has done is created this, this feeling in us or the effect that we're always being watched all of the time, always needing to present ourselves to the world so that we're hyper aware of everything we do, say, and think. But humility is the elevating out of self, being fully present to the people, the experiences, to the world around us. Humility is a form of love. C.S. Lewis captured this invitation to this form of humility perfectly when he said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, made in the image of God. It's thinking of yourself less. There is a form of pride where our awareness of self, of our own desires, our own goals, is loud and consumes our thoughts and actions. But humility is the emptying of self to be fully aware and attentive to the world and the people around us. And for followers of Jesus... Seeing things as they are, seeing ourselves as we are, is knowing that the only way to find yourself, your true self, is to, as Paul said, crucify the old self with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Baron calls it the emptying of the self to allow God to act. And it is this repeated fundamental principle of the kingdom of God. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Or as it says in this passage, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Which leads us to the final scene, the generous invitation. Now, this makes no sense in a world of entrepreneurs of the self. What does this invitation do? It honors and values those society doesn't. It acknowledges their humanity and their dignity. It shows they have a place at the table. And scripture often uses this imagery of the table, not just in a metaphorical sense, in a very literal sense, as a place for equality, for reconciliation, and love. And Jesus does the same again here. It's no wonder that one of the pinnacles, foundations of our faith, is the table, it's the communion table. But it also gives us an example of what it looks like to live a life, just a small example, of what it looks like to live a life not about project self. It shows a life that is not living to be seen, to receive or to be repaid. Humility leads us to live a life that is about laying down my own glory, my own privilege, my own power, my own opportunities for success for the sake of others. And there's this great passage on humility in Scripture if you know it, you'd have known it's coming in this talk. And it's where Paul is showing us why Jesus can describe himself as humble. And none of us in this room thought, well, that's a bit proud, Jesus. But none of us. It's why he can describe himself as humble, and we know that is absolutely true. Let me read it to you. It's Philippians uh, chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's this perfect articulation of what Jesus says in Luke 14. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this is Paul inviting us to have the same mindset of Christ. If we want to grow in our discipleship to Jesus, if we want to become more like him, this is what it looks like. This is the invitation. Humble ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but the interests of others. And if we are to do that, we, like, we need a lot of help. This this is, there's a reason why pride is often called the great sin, or like when you really dissect, when I really dissect my own life, I sort of see that really as the sort of final part. It's like, oh, so many of my motivations are about pride, and that's often the cause of a lot of the stuff that I have to battle through. And so if we're going to live this life, we are going to need a lot of help. If we're to use Therese of Avelia's two definitions that humility is about truth and self-knowledge, we need to remember Jesus' words that we get to come to him and we will find rest for our souls when we do that, that his burden is easy and light. But the, like, the beautiful invitation here is not only is it a call to service, not only is it a call to sacrifice, not only is it a call to kind of almost dying to self in order to live, but actually there's so much freedom in that. We don't have to put on a mask. We don't have to appear as somebody we're not. We don't have to see other people as competition. We just know that we are loved by him and live from that place. And to grow in self-knowledge and awareness, we just need to ask God, where are our blind spots? Maybe over Lent, as you go through this process, maybe that can be a, uh, something that you do. Just like ask God, God, what really has gripped my heart? Where's my true worship lie? Where are my true attachments kind of clinging onto? Is it, is it truly and wholly you, or is it something else? Is it myself? What am I doing in my life that leads me to turn inwards on myself rather than outwards towards God and to others? Look for opportunities to express love and humility through acts of service. Who's invited at your table? And I've just been reflecting on, again, like, you read the Gospels, Jesus' humility is all over the place. It's like, it's just remarkable. Uh, but the... the, the the story that we'll come to um, soon is when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. This most incredible act of humility. This figure, Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher. He, had, he would have had the place of honor, the natural place of honor in the table in that culture. And yet he was the one who humbled himself, washed his disciples' feet before they had the Last Supper, the day before he went to the cross. This incredible act of humility and service by the creator of the universe. Like, that is our example. And it's not like I'm saying to you, hey, it's easy. Just do all this stuff. It's really, really hard. It's the dying of self, like daily, daily, daily. And so we need to ask. We get to ask Jesus, can you help us? Help us become people who are humble at the core of who we are. Help us, like, when we live in culture, when we live in society, when we're at work, when we're with our families, may our presence feel like, like water, like fresh air, because we are not thinking about ourselves. We're not living the ways of the world. We're not putting on a mask. We are just allowing things to be as they are, we're living out this expression of humility that is being fully present to the people in front of us. This remarkable act of service from the creator 
of the, of the universe. And when I read that, I'm like, gosh, I've, so, I've got such a long way to go <laughs> when it comes to being a person of love. So if you feel like that, you are not alone. But that is the invitation. Becoming people of love who are radically devoted to Jesus and who will follow him wherever he leads. So I'm going to uh, pray if the band could come, come up. I'm just going to pray. Um, why don't you stand to your feet as well, actually, as they do that? <clears throat> just going to ask the Spirit to help us do this. This is in many ways a lifelong pursuit. This is not, um, you know, three steps and we've made it kind of stuff. This is like, Lord, drastically reorientate my life. <laughs> like, make the priorities of who I am, like, all about you, all about others. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love others, your neighbor as yourself. Like, this is the pursuit, and this is a lifelong pursuit. Um, but I'm going to invite the Spirit of God to uh, come now maybe reveal to us where we have put on a mask or where some attachments to ourselves or to our success or our value or worth as a person has come through our accomplishments or our successes. Like whatever it might be, I'm just um, going to pray that God reveals those to us. Um, but then we also experience his rest. That when we come to him, we don't receive judgment. We don't receive condemnation. We receive rest for our souls. Like, think about that. <laughs> when we reveal who the, like, the deepest, fullest parts of who we are, that is what we get. Rest for our souls. So Holy Spirit, would you come in this moment? 